I'm Zoe Bisbing, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. The Full Bloom Project was built on a commitment to bring parents and professionals who nurture young people evidence-based guidance. The way we parent and teach and feed and understand nutrition and define the boundaries of humanity continues to evolve, as does the scientific literature that serves to inform our own best practices at home, at school, in the consultation room, at the dinner table. But sometimes there's a limit to what we can do with evidence. Like, what good is the knowledge that family meals are associated with better academic performance and lower rates of depression, eating disorders, and substance use if you're struggling to just get through the day, never mind prepare a balanced meal for four? And what good is it to know how many servings of fruit and vegetables is optimal for our toddlers if we have trouble accessing fresh produce or figuring out how to use it before it rots in our fridge or getting them to eat anything other than chicken nuggets? When it comes to real life, how and what we actually feed our families, these are enormous questions being asked by a lot of vulnerable people often in a social media ecosystem where influencers with varying degrees of expertise assume unvetted and oftentimes undeserved authority. It's the Wild West where 90% of nutritional and weight loss advice dished out on social media is false. So we have to proceed with extreme discretion But my guest today, Jennifer Anderson, is a special breed of intermediary who can and should be trusted. A registered dietitian and mom of two, Jennifer is the creator of Kids Eat in Color, the Instagram sensation, and the world's leading resource for parents helping kids get on a path to better eating without the mealtime battles. Jennifer knows how to bridge the evidence-based practices with the realities of what everyday parents are really going through and honestly has personally helped me with creative ways to talk to my own kids about nutrition, tackle picky eating with practical strategies, and literally get food on my dinner table when all that I knew about what the research says I should do was simply not enough. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Nearly 2 million people follow you on Instagram. You are their dietitian. You get hundreds of thousands of questions in your DMs. What do people need? So I come at this from a public health perspective. I became a dietitian kind of by accident, but I really studied public health and that's that's where my master's degree is, and that's how I, I look at this as my public health program and now my public health company, right? And I have a really strong heartbeat on the parents and what they're going through. But I think even in graduate school, I thought, what is the point of all this if it all stays in school? Mm -hmm. We have to find a way to translate this into the day-to-day of what parents are experiencing in a way that parents can actually absorb it because parents are overrun with information, responsibilities, expectations, and they're burnout. 
you know, most parents, and sure, there's those type A parents who are super into what they're doing. They want to do everything right. And that's a different group of people. And they're following me too, because they're freaked out all of a sudden that they're messing up their kids because they're too type A. And they're so obsessed about every single thing they're feeding their child. And they're saying things like sugar is poison. (laughs) These foods are bad. One mom I did a podcast with said, I was so proud of my daughter when we were standing in Target or whatever. And she said, mommy, shouldn't we check this sugar content first? (laughs) Her daughter was five. And And she was proud about this. This was her pride. And I was on her podcast. So that was awkward. I was like, oh, but yeah, things are really tricky in the real world right now. And I get hundreds of DMs saying, my pediatrician said my child is fat. My pediatrician said my child needs to lose weight. My pediatrician said I should put my two-year-old on a diet. It's real. It's real. It's really happening right now. It's not like, oh, this happened and the parents are telling me the stories, although I hear that too. But there are doctors currently who are doing that. And I think there's a lot of work to be done. There is. And I think in our own rights, we're trying to help people do this work. And I think this conversation, I hope, will be useful not just to parents, but also other dietitians, other therapists, other public health folks, other people that are living in 2021, where social media is where we live, and can hear your wisdom in more of the kind of things you're really trained in, right? Like public health and dietetics, but also can get some ideas for how can they also be amplifiers How can they build their platforms? Because you have a lot of power in what you do. And you, not just in terms of hearing what people are concerned about, the concerns they're bringing to you, but also in the information you're disseminating. And I know you are not one of them, but there are so many dietitians even that are putting out a lot of information on social media that's not vetted, it's not safe even. And never mind dietitians, right? Non-trained folks. Right. Right. You know, I mean, I'm here to say at Kids Eating Color, like this is safe. This is full boom approved. But this is another piece of it too that I think we want to help people get better at delivering helpful information, right? Right. It's so tricky. And I think a lot of what has made Kids Eating Color a brand and even you know, now a public health company that's getting out there is saying, we are going to be here for you long-term in a bigger way, is we don't judge parents. We aren't beating people over the head with evidence. There's two ways that you can handle evidence. You can respect it, take it for what it is. You know, evidence is, it's got pros and cons too. You can use it to just beat people over the head. Say, this this is what the evidence says. You can't do it. You're failing as a parent which is what so much public health does. So many dietitians do that. I had a person say, I had to unfollow every single dietitian, every single nutrition person I follow on Instagram, except for you. Because when I follow you, I feel good about myself. I feel like I can do better. And I think we have to stop beating people over the head with evidence. Or you can keep doing it. (laughs) It's really up to you. But I mean, what do you want to put out there? What do you want to get back, you know? So I think you're talking a little bit about maybe what's made Kids Eating Color a success because you're not shaming anybody. But I also think you're giving really practical tools and strategies. 
I mean, at the end of the day, we're all trying to solve our problems <laughs> as parents, right? So people want a safe place, but sometimes, you know, talking to your friend down the street is a safe place, but she's not solving your problems at the meal times, right? <laughs> so I think we have something to offer and I've had something to offer parents, which is an actual education and in-depth understanding of feeding kids, of nutrition. And now we've brought in occupational therapists and speech-to-language pathologists and all this to our team so that we can actually speak to a lot of other things around it. And I think people, they want that information. I mean, you wouldn't go to your friend, a real friend, and say, oh, you are really messing up feeding your child. You know, here's the evidence. Um, You're not using the evidence. You know, is that a choking hazard that you just fed to your child? These are ways that a good friend would not speak to their friend. And people don't want that from their friend. They don't want that from their dietitian. They don't want that from their doctor. (laughs) Nobody Mm -hmm. wants to be told they're doing a bad job. But I think people do want to do things that help solve their problems. You know, they're thinking, gosh, my child isn't eating any fruits or vegetables. They are picky. We're having these incredible food battles. What am I supposed to do with this? What's the right way to handle this situation that's making me want to pull my hair out? And that's where we come in and we say, here you go. This is practical information that is also rooted in the evidence. And I always say evidence, but you know, we have a lot of research in a lot of areas, we don't have research in everything. So then we lean on the evidence that comes from practice, right? So we have practice-based recommendations. We have evidence-based recommendations. We have evidence-informed recommendations, right? All this information comes with kind of the professional package. But I'm always aware of limitations as well, right? There's always that parent who's like, but that doesn't work for me. Right. <laughs> or I can't do it. What do we say to parents who can't do it? This wisdom you have to offer, who's it for? This is for a parent who has a child that they are feeding. Specifically parents who are feeling a little bit frustrated, which is just about all parents because feeding kids is a lot trickier than most of us ever imagined. And that's where I come at it. I went into the pediatrician's office. I have a nine-month-old and they say, hey, your kid isn't growing. Let's give him some pediature. I almost fell on the floor. I'm a dietitian. How could I be having this problem with my child so early? It's not even one. (laughs) And I've already messed up my kid, right? That moment, I specialized my knowledge. I did a deep dive and I began the struggle. doesn't matter how much you know. Your kid doesn't care how much you know. So, so many people across so many socioeconomic levels, so many different cultures, people from all around the world, we're all having the same problem, which is our kids aren't eating what we get them, or they're falling off the growth chart, or the doctor is saying, oh, your kid is too big. They're on the other side of the growth chart. You know, we have all these messages all around us telling us there's things that are bad to feed our kids, things that are good. It's confusing. It's frustrating. It's six times a day feeding the kids. It's just overwhelming. And even people who don't have a child in their care, the aunts, the grandmas, the grandpas, everybody seems to be involved in this job of feeding kids. And it's wonderful. It's how we pass on our cultures. It can be the focus of our families, that mealtime, if that's something that works for us. But also 
it can be so, so frustrating. And that's why we're here for the parents of picky eaters, because picky eating just looks so different for different families and eating in general. And we're here for all the parents. And just to add this, so many companies, programs, influencers, they want to tell you what the best practice is. And coming from a public health background, I get it. I know what the best practices are. I read the literature. (laughs) I understand. But guess what? I've also had a decade of experience being depressed. I've been depressed with babies. I've been depressed with toddlers. And you know what? We're not saying anything to that mom or that dad. What do you tell them when they don't have any capacity, when they're barely getting out of bed, when they're barely getting their kid into bed, when they're thinking, oh my gosh, I don't have anything to feed my kid for dinner. I have a refrigerator full of food and I have no capacity. What do you tell the mom then? And how do you reduce the harm? Because harm can come from that. I've lived through that. I've fed my kid Cheerios for dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that a great dinner? Actually, it's not. <laughs> did it get us to bed? Yes, it did. But I think we are so focused on what is best that we forget about the millions of people who are struggling with not enough food, not enough sleep, not enough mental health to make it through the day, schedules that are so busy that their brains are burnt out, and not to mention the pandemic. So many of us are either still in it or trying to get out of it, right? Right. And kids in color and I come from this really strong base of we will support parents wherever you're at. Are you feeding only Cheerios? Are you feeding fast food every day? We're here for you. We're never going to tell you you're doing a bad job. We're never going to say, hey, you got to stop doing that. That's killing your kid. There's messages out there like that. You're killing your kid if you're feeding him that. (laughs) We got to stop this. That comment is killing. That's that shame and stigma. And when you were mapping out that experience of burnt out or fridge full of food, but no, no capacity to prepare it. And then I'm thinking too, like, if you've got that box of mac and cheese in the pantry, but you feel like you're a bad parent if you give that to your kid, you know, or if fast food is the most accessible just to get some nutrition in your kid or to have a family meal. This is my favorite thing. There's all this research, family meal, family meal, family meals are hard to pull off, you know? And so this is a good example, right? Of how we have the evidence, family meals are really protective in all sorts of ways, but sometimes the thing that's preventing people from having a family meal is their expectation of what's supposed to go on the table. Right. And I think that this conversation can take it even one step further because that shame when you're like, oh, well, there's this, but I couldn't possibly give Cheerios for dinner tonight. And I hear you saying, this is not optimal, but you're not a bad person if that's what it's come to, right? Right, because at the end of the day, you got some calories into your child, enough to get them to sleep, and then tomorrow's another day. You could try again. We have an article on kidsincolor.com where I really do talk more about my experience. Of Friday nights, my husband was studying at school. I have a baby, a toddler, a chaotic schedule, and more Fridays than I would like to admit Cheerios for dinner was what was on the menu. Cheerios are very low in protein. They're very low in fat. I'm a dietitian. And you can imagine how I felt in that moment thinking, I'm failing my children, but also this is all I can do. This is literally all I can do to make it through this day. 
At the end of the day, that had to be enough. And I think most organizations, most companies, most brands, the people at the top, they've had it together. They made their kids dinner on that night. They pulled together even something simple like eggs and toast. And I think I just really have this really deep empathy and understanding of what it feels like to be parenting at the bottom. Although I had a job, right? So I haven't dealt with food insecurity, but I grew up in a poor family. The only reason we didn't have food insecurity is because my mother made it her full-time job to make every single penny stretch. So I've been on that side too, where if something had happened to my mother, (laughs) you know, the whole family would have fallen apart, right? So I think we have to have this deep empathy of, or even just the realization that not everybody has food, not everybody has time, not everybody has the capacity to do what we're telling them is the best thing to do. And so we have to find a way of communicating that is very caring and open. And in this article that I wrote where we talk about this, you know, we talk about harm reduction. If I fed my child Cheerios, day in, day out, every meal, my child would absolutely most certainly develop nutrient deficiencies and would become unwell. But if I can tell myself once a week, I can do Cheerios for dinner and then the rest of the meals, I could do a little better than that. And I can put together a very, very simple, basic plan where I'm using the easiest foods that I can afford. And I'm just doing that to get through these rough times. If I can do that, I'm not killing it in the food department, but you know what? I'm doing a good job and we're making it. And we have some days that are worse than others. And we have some days that are a little better than others. And over time, we build our own capacity. And now I'm in a place where I haven't served Cheerios for dinner in several years, right? My base capacity now is eggs and toast, which, you know, that's actually a little better than than Cheerios. (laughs) A little better. It's actually a lot better. (laughs) (laughs) And I consider it a completely respectable meal. So I think we have to like give ourselves some grace. We have to give ourselves some understanding, come up with strategies that like we can carry out. And remember that a base would be either I'm not feeding my kid or I'm only feeding them like toast or I'm only feeding them Cheerios or whatever. But when we give ourselves the permission to think of that as, okay, that's the bottom rung and that's still okay for me to do that. But then if I'm okay and I think I'm still a good parent, then I can actually once a week, I can make a better dinner because I gave myself permission. And in the public health world, we call that harm reduction. You know, we're not asking people to follow every single best practice. We're just asking them to do a little better than whatever their bottom is. And often people, even like myself, we respond well to that. We say, oh, wow, I could do a little bit more. Yeah, same as a therapist in practice, you know, trying to work so much on helping people understand how shame is really interfering with their capacity to see that they're okay. But thankfully, there are free resources like Instagram, Kids Eat in Color, to kind of help you in a very digestible and accessible way. I'm wondering if we switch gears a little bit to the kids, right? Because picky eating is tricky. And I think of picky eating on like a continuum. And I think all of us parents of young children think we have a picky eater. But I wonder if you could just give us a little crash course in what's like lowercase picky eating and what's like uppercase P picky eating. Yeah, it's absolutely continuum. And we help so many parents along the continuum because I think the real 
Question is, how are you handling picky eating? Is it tearing your family apart? Are you ripping your hair out? Are you so frustrated? If that's the case, I don't really care if your child is lowercase picky or uppercase picky. It doesn't really matter because it is so disruptively picky for your household that you need to address it for your own sake. At the same time, there are some times where I actually become concerned about your child's welfare. So if your child is decreasing the number of foods that they're willing to eat over time, those foods are never coming back. They used to eat everything, but now they're eating 30 foods. Now they're eating 20 foods. Now they're eating 15 foods. That is a real cause for concern from a nutrition standpoint. Or if your child eats more than 30 foods, but they are dropping whole categories. So I no longer eat any animal products or no meat, absolutely. Now your child doesn't have to eat meat to be healthy, but if you're an omnivorous family and all of a sudden your child won't eat any meat, that's a red flag, or I don't need any fruits or vegetables. Those sorts of things, those are all red flags. Or if you're thinking, man, I look around at what my friends are experiencing and this just seems really wrong, whatever is happening in my family. It seems so extreme compared to what my friends are experiencing. Now, it's always tricky to compare yourself to other people, but sometimes it can give you some clues that things might be different and you might want to talk to a professional or something so you can kind of get a read on what is happening in your family. I love that you're naming the family dynamic because this is not unusual for a child to really actually be doing kind of fine, but the parents are so concerned about it and maybe accommodating the child in a way, right? Like there's some feeding dynamics that need looking at and flagging, oh, I have a picky eater. If the parent is conceptualizing the problem as my child's a picky eater and they go for support in some way, whether it's a program that you offer or, you know, individual dietitian, it's actually not the end of the world if they're misperceiving what's happening because they might be able to get some support. So I like what you're saying about the clue is, is there something up in the dynamic? And then, of course, what you're describing about diminishing food groups and variety, that's a good barometer. Right. And I mean, honestly, in our Better Bites program, which is the program that we help families be eaters, I mean, really, the first two-thirds of the program is dealing with the parents, right, and the feeding environment, and understanding picky eating. That's something the parents don't understand, understandably, <laughs> because it's complicated, and there's so many reasons that kids become picky eaters, and parents feel very personally, it's my fault that my child isn't eating. I get it. I get that feeling. I've had that feeling. I have both a picky eater and a kid who follows the growth chart, right? <laughs> Feeding kids is very tricky and it feels very personal, but there's so many things that go into feeding a child that often some of the things are out of our control and how we react can help our child move in one direction or another, but we don't necessarily know that. For some reason, almost none of it is intuitive. <laughs> you know, None of it's intuitive. We weren't raised in that way. The food environment is different than it used to be and now we're stuck kind of feeling like we have no tools other than kind of falling back on what our parents did, which didn't even feel right then. And it doesn't feel right now. And so we're saying things like, you got to take three bites before you leave the table, but that's actually not solving any problems. That's the other thing. You know, so many things we're trying, they're not working. 
but we keep trying them because we don't have any other tools. So that's why we have to say, look, you got to understand picky eating. And you also really have to learn your job as the parent of how do I create a feeding environment that actually will enable my child to learn to eat more foods? And then eventually we get to the kid, right? Right. Of course, you have to start that way, which is not pathologizing the parent. It's just saying, like, we have to put the oxygen mask on you first. And then we can put it on your kid. So as a clinician myself, this podcast episode is not meant to be advice for any particular child. And I always have to disclaim, like, if you think you have a problem, if you're concerned, reach out, whether it's me or you, we can connect you with with what you need. Absolutely. And to note, if your child is ever losing weight... Oh, yeah. That is a time to go to your pediatrician today and address that. You know, a lot of times we think, oh, it'll be okay. But if your child is losing weight or having symptoms or pain or something like that, you've got to go to the doctor right away. Totally. And I'm going to add to you what you're saying. If your child is losing weight, no matter what weight they were to begin with. So if you have a child who was at the 99th percentile and their weight loss is something that is exciting you, or is pleasing people around them, or is eliciting positive feedback, it is still, and we, I just did an interview where we talked about this, that child deserves our concern as well. Absolutely. Yes. I never want to see a child losing weight aside from, you know, a sickness or, you know, kids' weights may go up or down, but really I don't want to see any child of any size just losing weight. I mean, that's, that's a huge cause for concern. A huge cause for concern. And I want pediatricians to know that too. Yes. Um, that's uh, so maybe, maybe your uh, <laughs> the next iteration of your business can be to know, like educate right? all the incredible pediatricians. Yes. They're incredible pediatricians. It's not yes. even that they're yes, yes, yes. bad guys and gals and people. Like they're wonderful doctors and that they just haven't had this part of their education yet. I think it's also fair to note that pediatricians have been highly influenced by diet culture just as much as any of us. And nutrition information is not built into their curriculum, nor is eating disorder prevention. Although even the Academy of Pediatrics is out there saying, don't talk to kids about their weight. So I'm not sure where that disconnect is, but I think we need to give pediatricians more tools that work for them. You know, I'm not expecting a pediatrician to go get a master's degree in nutrition and eating disorder prevention. That's silly. I think we need to learn to work together better so that pediatricians know, hey, I got a picky eater. I need to send them over to Kids Eating Color where they're going to be taken care of in an evidence-based way. We need to provide those solutions to pediatricians because, you know, and they have 10 minutes or 15 minutes, you know, there's just so many constraints and they don't necessarily have tools that make sense in their practice. Right. It's more systemic in the education. But, you know, one of the things that I keep thinking about is the importance of thinking really deeply about the next generation. And so if we can raise the next generation of not just physicians, right, but of people that are going to write medical school curriculums that are going to kind of been raised by a parent that followed Kids Eat in Color or that listened to the Full Bloom podcast, mm-hmm. right, that got some new ideas and instilled values in their kids along the way, right, fostering their own natural interests. But if you have a kid that's sciencey and that might be pre-med, like, this is a kid one day 
that really could go on to carry all these messages with them. And it's the idealist in me. But I feel like I'm thinking about like 50 years from now, these kids that maybe were served a little carrot in the shape of a clover that, you know, someone was inspired by your Instagram post, right? So this is, to me, I don't know, that's my hope. I get very despairing as well, but that's my hope. <laughs> well, I mean, if we're all despairing, what's the point, right? Totally. <laughs> Let's go home and <laughs> go take a nap. I think it's not just 50 years from now. It's right now as well. Because, and I'll just give you a success story. Obviously, I have many stories from my family that it's not so pretty, but... I've always said to my kids, carrots help you see in the dark. Now, we know that carrots don't magically make your eyesight better, but we do know that carrots have a lot of vitamin A. And if we do have a deficiency of vitamin A, we cannot see in the dark. We lose our night vision, right? And that's one of the primary signs of vitamin A deficiency. So carrots support our bodies in seeing in the dark. Kids love this message. They love this message that carrots help them see in the dark. So my son really loved this message as well. And we went to the pool a couple summers ago. And, you know, he was probably five, something like that. And I had a bunch of carrot sticks and watermelon in this plastic bag. And we sat down and there was a kid there. And I think his mom was either not there or offering a book or something like that. And he kind of wandered over and sat down at our table. And I said, hey, you want, you want a snack? And he said, ew, carrots. And my son looked at him and he said, what? Carrots help you see in the dark. Next thing you know, both of them were eating carrots. Oh my gosh. And I think what's so amazing about that is when kids really believe something works for them, they're willing to tell somebody else and kids listen to kids. Now, obviously right now, that same kid is in a phase where he doesn't want to eat carrots, probably because I told them, <laughs> you know, this helps you see in the dark. And I was like, well, then I'm not going to eat it. Yeah. Um, you know, the kids go through phases, but I think that's important. And the same kid also went to school and his friend, when he was six, said chocolate is bad for you because it has sugar in it. And we don't talk about sugar being bad. We don't talk about any foods being bad. So he comes home and he said, you know, so-and-so said chocolate is bad for you because it had sugar in it, but sugar just does a few things in your body, right? That's all. And that was our conversation, right? He had the tools he needed at that time to just note, yeah, okay, sugar is different from other foods. It does less things in your body than say broccoli or bread or whatever, but that doesn't make it bad. It just makes it different. And I think if we can give our kids that information now, we prevent racism in the form of people saying bad things about each other's food. It's part of eating disorder prevention. And we help protect our kids from then feeling bad because they had a cookie. One of the first interviews we did on this podcast was with the public health researcher, Kendrin Sonnenville. And one of my favorite quotes, she said, eating one cookie, two cookies, three cookies without guilt or shame is a life skill. <laughs> and I think it's so true. But what I love about what you're saying too is that you're helping train the brain to see nuance. It's really to see beyond the binary. And what I think is so amazing about that example is that your son is like, well, no, it's just less. He's able in his little kid brain, able to see that there's a shade of gray that it's not bad, good, but that it's like more or less, which has so much more 
it's just training flexibility. I'm doing this with my hand right, because I'm thinking right. about like neuropathways, you know? So that's an additional thing that I think we can know we're doing. I feel like if we want to raise kind children, we have to teach them this sort of flexibility because they're going to go to school and they're going to have a friend who has a single parent with a single parent income, no support, and their lunch is going to look different than the lunch that my kids brought, right? But, you know, like we have food security, we have an income, we can have variety, we can have lots of these things. Another child may not, and their food may look entirely different. Now, if my kid thinks that there are good foods and bad foods, they may look at that kid's lunch and say, ooh, that is a bad lunch. You talk to any preschool teacher, I will guarantee you they have some story of a preschooler, a three-year-old, saying your mommy fed you poison in your lunch because there's a cookie there or there's a piece of chocolate or whatever. We can't be doing that. You're totally disadvantaging that poor kid from the very beginning just because of what their parent decided to put in their lunch based on what made sense for their family. Or do you take a child, and this is happening as well in schools, you know, the kids have learned good food, bad food. You take the kid who has ARFID, avoidant restrictive feeding intake disorder, or is extremely picky and has, you know, some fears and suspicions about food. And all of a sudden they learn that all the foods they can eat are bad. And now that child is losing some of their safe foods, which becomes a nutritional catastrophe when your child only has 10 foods. And one of them was pizza. And now they learn that pizza is a bad food. These messages aren't neutral. They aren't neutral when it comes to health. Sure, you know, maybe our society has swung a little far on the adding sugar to everything spectrum. You know, I don't think anybody's going to deny that. But at the same time, we're living in this world. And, you know, some of us have the capacity to say, okay, I'm not going to serve as much sugar in my house because I think that's what's best for us. And we have the capacity and the funds and everything we need to do that. But there's other families who don't have any of that capacity. They don't have the financial, the emotional, the mental, the family stability to change the diet from what is kind of the quote norm. They shouldn't receive any stigma for that. They really shouldn't. No, I agree with you. And the trick, of course, for kids is to <laughs> help them learn that without telling them exactly in so many words, right? So hard. Because <laughs> you, so you can't say any of that. <laughs> no, I mean, that was so beautifully said. And then I can imagine myself saying that to my kid and them looking at me like, all right, what you? it's like you said earlier, the kid, your kid doesn't care what you know. No, <laughs> no. But I think these tiny little snapshots, like name foods, like parents are like, well, what should I say about cookies? And it's like, well, they have a name and it's cookies. Use that name. This is a cookie. Like if we could just go back to not labeling foods and just say, oh, this is broccoli. This is a cookie. This is candy. You know, instead we have all this hype. This is broccoli. It's good for you. It's going to do, it's going to make you strong, whatever that means. It's going to do this. It's going to do that. I mean, honestly, cookies will also make you strong, but people get upset when I say that. Yeah. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> right? So we have these messages and then we say cookies. Oh, we can only ever have one cookie because it's, I mean, you know, people have all these, all these words. We could just go back to this is a cookie. This is broccoli and leave the labels. Also provide little bits of information. Hey, some foods do more things in your body than other foods. That is also just a fact. And it does introduce this idea of flexibility. 
oh, it's not just good or bad. It's different. Every food is different. And I think these little messages add up over time. And then also some things like don't yuck on somebody else's yum. That's a big thing. I had a very interesting experience with my six-year-old and you know, we've been saying don't yuck on somebody else's yum for years. And recently, my just turned six-year-old for the previous year, man, every other thing was, this is disgusting. Ew, don't put this on the table. And I'm thinking, what happened to all those years of don't yes. yuck on somebody else's yum, yes. right? Where we had all this history of good things. So we go visit my brother and my brother's partner makes Korean barbecue. And she bought a whole bunch of stuff from the Korean store, including like a kimchi and it was a very large yellow type looking it was like a radish or something mm-hmm. and he had never seen it I think he thought it was something else and everybody's standing around takes a big bite of it and I just see his face and I know how it tastes right it's a very strong flavor we're not used to that flavor in our house and he looks at it and he gets this panic look in his eye and he doesn't say anything he doesn't say anything. He just looks at me like, I'm dying. Can you help me? And I, I brought him inside and I let him spit it out, but he didn't say anything bad. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's actually getting through. Yeah, he's doing it with me. But when he actually gets into a situation where he knows that he can't yuck on somebody else's yum, he didn't do it. He just found a way to, <laughs> to handle himself properly. I think this is the sort of thing we want to see. We may never see it at home. Yeah. uh, But at least when they go out, that's the hope, right? I'm going to take your word for that because, right, that's a rare moment where you get to see what's happening. You're giving me hope that maybe what I'm seeing at home is not happening out there. Like if my kid is going to be receiving something like that, they'll have internalized the message in the same way because you you are pointing out a helpful reminder that our kids are going to behave all sorts of ways and push harder and be more explicit with us and... I was going to just ask you, like, because it's happening a lot here, too. And when they say it at home, what do you say when you are hearing a lot of, like, ugh, I'm not eating that. That's disgusting. (laughs) Because it is so normal. But it's hard to know how to reply in the moment, especially if we're trying to, like, hold all this information. Yeah. I think as a parent, it's always tricky, right? And it depends on how much capacity we have in the moment. Because sometimes you're feeling very on top of your parenting, And you don't say anything because, you know what, it doesn't deserve a response. And they don't need a response. They just want to express how disgusting it appears or tastes to them. Or maybe they had a bad day at school and they're just telling you. So I think in my better moments, I don't say anything or I just kindly remind them. This is really my go-to is you don't have to eat it. Right. You know, just sit with us at the table. You don't have to eat it. You can also say, you can eat it when you're ready. I prefer that with a picky eater because we don't want to reinforce the idea that they never have to eat something. That basically reinforces to them that they are a picky eater, that they are never going to get to the point that they might taste something new. So for a really picky eater, I use phrasing like, well, you can eat it when you're ready. And maybe that's a year from now. Or I might remind them, hey, we don't yuck on somebody else's yum. Or in my worst moments, I'm like, I made that for you. <laughs> you don't you don't have to eat it, but also you don't have to be offensive about it. Yeah. You know, I think we, uh, we like to pretend that we never lose it with our kids, but sometimes that like whiny voice that's been going on for 10 minutes about how bad the food was that you made, when you spent 30 minutes making it for them, 
or an hour. Sometimes you just, you're like, no, you can't say that about what I made for you. Um, so I think there's, there's that whole range of reminding kids, no, we don't say something is yucky. And, you know, that is rude behavior. And if you said that to grandma, that would be extremely rude behavior. So we can't be doing that. But I do understand this is upsetting to you. You don't have to have it on your plate. You can put it to the side and give them all the strategies. I mean, I don't believe in forcing kids to eat something because that's a really quick way of making them not like it (laughs) and not eating in the future. But I think, you know, we have to give ourselves some flexibility as parents to both be normal and also try to help the kids, you know, develop the skills they need. Totally. And I think it's full circle to like where we started, how your strengths-based, compassion-focused approach to supporting parents and other people that feed children it starts from just giving yourself a break, like taking a look at your own circumstances and where you, wherever you are and being like, I'm doing okay. I could do a little better. Okay. But I'm going to start here. And I think that, you know, it's like that trickle down effect, right? I think what you're saying, you can eat it when you're ready. I like that almost for even a not so picky eater because sort of like you might be one day right now, no biggie. Like, you'll get there or not. But I mean, just that kind of unruffled attitude feels like that is right. That's when you know you're doing well as a parent. Right. But I think what you're saying is even if you've lost it and you're now listening to this episode and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, I made them take three bites or I made them clean their plate or, okay, maybe think about other ways and think about what you might need as a parent in order to start with where you are Notice where your kid is and then find accessible resources to help you kind of get a little system going with yourself and in your family. Yeah. And I think it's just important to remember, even the experts, like people, people say to me, do your kids ever eat XYZ quote junk food? My kids eat everything. They eat all the junk foods, whatever they are, you know, they eat all the foods unless it's, you know, like I would never, ever feed my kid coffee. That would be no <laughs> for my own sake or alcohol because that's illegal. You know, there's like, there's lists of foods Some that limit. we don't feed kids, right? But yeah, I mean, there was this one time I made this smoothie for my child. It was a rough day. I had to be somewhere on time and, you know, drive through a bunch of traffic to get there. And I was trying to get out the door. I made this amazing smoothie for my son. He was like, I'm not eating it. And this is the kid who doesn't eat enough. He's chronically not eating enough, all these things. And I was so flustered that I was just like, you have to take a bite. I mean, this is like, I mean, I've been running this public health Instagram for years saying, you know, don't do the secret. And there it comes right out of my mouth. Yeah, Get yeah. it, a bite. Because that's what's intuitive. <laughs> yeah. And he's looking at me like, What? You never say that. What are you even talking about? I'm, you know, making this whole deal about this one bite. So he takes a sip of the smoothie and that was it, right? I mean, what was the point of that? He was like, it tastes like sand, blah, blah, blah. Now here's the worst part. He leaves. I take a sip of it. It totally tasted like sand. It was gross. <laughs> it was disgusting. <laughs> he knew. He knew. <laughs> it was disgusting. But I mean, I just share this because at the end of the day, those of us who have kids, we're parents. We're trying to do it. Sometimes things come out of our mouth that really aren't helpful for us or our kids. And we do things, even those of us who really are committed to a certain way of feeding kids and figuring things out, which I would say I am, right? I I really do live to the best of my ability what I talk about. And still, I still do 
crazy things like that. It's totally normal. And it's also one of these things where you're like, okay, that didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll try something else next time, you know? And it's a good reminder for me. Yeah, like we all get to learn. Oh my gosh, I have had those as well. And again, kind of thinking about the power that comes from being this authority figure. I mean, you're an authority figure on, I mean, we, we both are like, and I think we have to kind of be aware of that in terms of the power that comes with that. But to use that to basically not just say everyone's doing okay where they are, but also to say, I do this too. Or I think you mentioned someone said, oh, how do you stay so thin? And then to use your platform to say, well, let me tell you about genetics and let me tell you about privilege and let me tell you about access. And this is so meaningful. And I think the research that we've tried to kind of bring forth here around building eating competency skills, right? We love the Ellen Satter models. That's the evidence. And then Mm -hmm. I think what your Instagram is doing is showing people how in real life you can help your kids build eating competence so that they are when we say, quote, good eaters, they know how to eat when they're hungry, stop when they're full, or overeat and not feel bad about themselves for having done it, eat a wide-ish variety of foods over time, be kind to others in terms of their cultures, and be able to eat a Big Mac and also a kale smoothie, perhaps at the same time or the same day. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's not just one way to do it. There's so much that just goes beyond what we're feeding our kids. And we like to get focused on the broccoli. I mean, the healthy food. And there's so many other companies. There's so many other, you know, influencers out there who say, this is the right way to feed your kids. This is the right way. We got to get them eating the veggies. I mean, I love broccoli. I also love potato chips. Full disclosure. Same, same. But I think we also have to think beyond what is actually being served on the table. If we just stop with that and we stop with this focus of like, I have to eat this during pregnancy and I have to feed my infant like this. And then I have to do weaning like this. And then I have to get through the toddler years like this. I mean, at what point do you stop obsessing about food? I I feel like it's super easy to just take the super prevalent eating disorders that are out there and new ones now. Now we have orthorexia, right? (laughs) Like we're so obsessed with feeding our kids that like people are becoming very, very obsessed about feeding kids the right way. How crazy do we want to make ourselves over this? No, I mean, I think hopefully less crazy. And I think as someone that has used your real easy weekdays program just to kind of help center myself, because sometimes information isn't enough. I mean, I think it's partly why I appreciate your work so much, because even someone, you know, like I know what to do. I know what the evidence is. I think I'm a pretty competent eater myself. And at the same time, oh my gosh, it's almost impossible not to fall into ruts or not to quite know how to like essentially practice what you preach, right? Or, (laughs) and I think that, you know, I'm plugging your, and we'll link to all your resources too, because just having a system, having a shopping list, having, and having the person that's educating me also reminding me that this is not even accessible for all, which I know you have done something about, right, with affordable flavors. Yeah, you know, there are like so few resources out there for people on a really, really tight budget. So we created affordable flavors. We brought together a diverse group of dietitians who created a menu. It's a month-long menu, breakfast, lunch, dinner, 
two snacks a day for a family of four for under $500 a month in groceries. That's the goal. Calls out the WIC foods, points to different resources for extending your thing. And what we've seen is just an incredible outpouring of people saying, thank you. I just lost my job during the pandemic. What do I do? My hours were cut back during the pandemic. All of a sudden we're on one income or you know, now we're on two incomes, but, you know, so there's so many situations where people are newly uh, receiving SNAP benefits. They're newly receiving WIC benefits, which is the Women, Infants, and Children program. And, you know, people are really struggling. But what we've also heard are so many other people saying, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how little money people had for food. Oh my gosh, I have so much. People saying, this is expanding my mind. And now I want to get more involved in food access in making sure everybody has food. And I think we just really need to make sure, like, what is the point of talking about nutrition on a broad scale when you know a huge percentage of families may not have money to buy food to last till the end of the month? I mean, if you don't have access to the food in your neighborhood, you don't have money to buy the food. Why are we even talking about nutrition, you know? So the goal of this is to really help people, um, help people expand it. And we are working with national organizations, local organizations, healthcare systems, getting bulk purchases, bulk licensing to them so that they can get that out there to really help people know how to actually cook and make their money and make their food last. Yeah. Oh, no. It's it's wonderful. So I'm going to link to all of your resources, but do you have any others that you suggest for uh, people that want to read more or learn more? Yeah. So, you know, if you do want to learn more about kind of that technical, why would I ever serve dessert with a meal? Or why am I in charge of setting the meal times? Anything by Ellen Satter, of course, is so solid. And she goes into all the depth with that, right? And then if you're trying to help your child understand what does food do in my body? How could I learn a little bit more about food? I really like the book, Where Does Broccoli Come From? by Ariel uh, Lebovitz. And then, you know, if you've got a little one and you're just trying to introduce the idea that there's foods and all that fun stuff. Pandas Love Pickles is a really fun one. What I like about that particular book is just those animals with foods and it's kind of like an alphabet book, that sort of thing. And it's a board book. But what I really like about it is there are no good and bad foods. There's donuts, there's pickles, there's broccoli, there's all sorts of different foods in those that just kind of help kids have fun and see food in all sorts of different lights. Um, And that's by Liz Lynch. So those are some fun ones. Those are great. I mean, I think we hit everything plus more. Is there anything that you want to add before? There is nothing to add at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Unless people really want to get on the soapbox and then there's no stopping me. (laughs) Well, but that's why you have uh, kids eating college. That's right. That's right. (laughs) So that's today's show. As always, if you like what you're hearing and you want to support the show, rate us, review us, share this episode with a friend, and you can do this wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune back in next time for more body-positive parenting wisdom.